0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Are you there? It'll be okay. Uh, Every angle and an update of COVID-19. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson show on 900 CHML. So there's lots of chatter now as we've got past um, the initial, uh, I guess uh, uh, awareness of how you make this happen and, and that this is the new normal this is the new uh, your new day sort of speak. this is how things are done education from home, uh, working from home, <laughs> everything from home. Uh, now that we're in past the, the first month stage, we're starting to hear people talk about the backside of the curve and 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 getting back to normal and such. And also what we're seeing as we round out the top of that curve, hopefully, uh, is people are starting to second guess uh, how we got to where we are, uh, perhaps moving forward. Uh, is it time for that or? Uh, is it time just to concentrate on what we're doing and moving forward? An op-ed in the Toronto in the Toronto Star suggests that we may have missed the worst-case scenario for the pandemic. Uh, and here's another angle to all of this: in the sense that um, uh, when the projections came out a couple of weeks ago, the period that we're in right now was pretty dark. So. Uh, it seems as if we've flattened that part of the curve and, and spread those uh, those uh, cases uh, over a greater period of time, which, of course, helps us from overloading uh, the healthcare system. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, a faculty member, Human and Social Sciences and Health Policy Advisor, Wilford Laurier University. He is with us now. Uh, Ahmad, thank you so much for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Of course. Happy to speak to you, Scott. Uh, Your thoughts where we are today after a long weekend and such. uh, Did we come through this better than previous weekends?
1: Uh, I think so, but we have to remind ourselves that today Ontario reported the highest number of COVID-19 deaths in a single day and added 483 new cases total. So uh, I do say that uh, I do think that we are doing much better than we thought we would be doing, but the, the war is not over. I think we're still in this for a long haul. Uh, I think the best way to describe this is that physical distancing is a medication. We are the patient, uh, and it takes time to see the effects of the medication. We can't just decide all of a sudden when, you get, when you're given a medication that it's working. It takes time and patience to see if the medication we prescribe is the right one, it's at the right dosage, or we need to increase it or see alternative treatments for it. But as we know from now that physical distancing and our efforts to close down non-essential services is definitely making an impact. We're much better than we thought we would be, uh, but I think time will tell on that
0: one. Uh, we knew we were going to see more cases as Ontario continued to ramp up its testing. You were, As you mentioned in past shows, it, it's the, 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 the number of deaths that, that concern you the most. As you mentioned, uh, this was a peak for Ontario. What does that say about where we are in all of this? I think it tells us that we
1: don't have a backlog in our testing, that we are getting ahead of testing people that need to get tested. We also heard last week from Ontario government that we're ramping up the amount of tests that we conduct, hoping by the end of the week that we'd be able to to increase the testing by 8,000 by April 15th and 14,000 tests by April 29th. I think that's a great promising sign because, you know, the World Health Organization has repeatedly kept stating that the only way to get ahead of this pandemic is that we test, test, test the more people we test, the better we are at contact tracing, the better we are at mitigating the risk of the increase in the spread of the virus. And so those are all promising signs. I think in addition to the 100 assessment centres we have established in Ontario, the proactive testing of several priority groups, including hospital inpatients, residents of long-term care, is only going to get us closer to getting back to normal life as it was pre-COVID-19.
0: And you bring up a valid point, and 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 again, we've certainly heard of, of shortages shortages of supplies and tests since this whole thing started. Now, as you mentioned, that's getting back to normal, it appears for Ontario. But is it more accurate to say until it is at the point where uh, a lot more people are being tested, we're really not going to see our way out of this, are we? Until because right now it's the unknown. At least if we test, we have more information, we have more foresight. Is that accurate? That yeah, is
1: absolutely accurate. I think the, the way to explain it, Scott, is that our healthcare system right now is on a pause button. Uh, and so, you know, until we switch back the on button on our health system, will we see that uh, we're back to sort of normal life as we knew it before? Those are some of the early signs that we're getting closer to the end of this, when we see that elective surgeries and elective treatments are back to normal. We know of cases of many patients right now, who were, you know, your dad who needed back surgery or somebody who needed a biopsy, for example, is put on hold. We need to get back to a point where we are able to address those non-urgent care for us to see a sign out of this. But, yeah, I think we're doing all the right steps to get closer to a better containment of this pandemic.
0: Supplies seem to be the issue at the start of all of this. As you mentioned, it seems that those are, are leveling out now and, and the, the much-needed supplies are getting to where they need to go or will be shortly over time. Um, the concern now seems to be uh, in regard to seniors' homes and, and facilities such as this. What is it that, that is there anything that, that we can do to try to alleviate what it was just as an alarming amount of deaths in those homes, those facilities?
1: Yeah, so we've heard calls of people asking uh, that you, if you have a family member or close relative in a long-term care or retirement home to explore the options of removing them from that home. I think by virtue of the, the physical space as it is, it makes it very easy for infectious diseases to spread in such environment. And by that, I mean is that there's not much self-isolation space available in those homes. And so if you have a COVID-19 patient in a long-term home, it's very easy for it to spread throughout Facility, and so that's an issue that I think will change over time. I think COVID nineteen sort of put that model into test, uh, and we've it showed that it's not an effective model in case of an infectious outbreak. So I will I will expect that in the future the way we build our long term cares and retirement homes will change. We will see that the more self isolation units in them, like we have in our hospitals, because as of now currently they don't function uh, to isolate diseases like COVID nineteen.
0: What sort of changes do you see, what, even just in attitude, uh, in regard to the way we administer health and, and how we get through this? I mean, obviously, there'll be a post postmortem done when, when this is all over to see how everybody reacted to all of this. But can you see a lot of attention being paid specifically to long-term care uh, centers, senior centers, and and as you mentioned, even the way day-to-day hospitals are run?
1: Absolutely. So I actually just wrote a paper about how our systems will change. Much of the conversation that's happening right now is really looking at micro level. And by that I mean is that we're looking at how we could change the way we deliver groceries. But very few people are actually trying to think about this at a system level. So whether we look at the political system, the health system, the international humanitarian aid system or the health research system, I suspect there will be changes across sectors. Because what COVID-19 has shown us is that it is not a se- sector-specific; it crosses all sectors and involves multiple stakeholders. It's going to require this like reimagination of how we run uh, our systems. Period. So when it comes to health system, for example, I think we're going to see that the way we treat our healthcare workers are going to change. How we support them in their day-to-day activities. How do we treat them like war veterans so that they ensure that their families are being taken care of when they're deployed take care of a pandemic. I think we're seeing a lot of memes about how we now value healthcare workers more than we value our athletes. And by value, I mean how much we pay them. So I think that also there's going to be a massive investment in telehealth. So when it comes to the health system, what COVID-19 has shown us is that we really need to upscale and invest so much in telehealth. And by that I mean is that there are so many, there's pockets of our population are unable to access a computer or a phone to get care through their healthcare provider. What do we do about that? So we need to figure out a better way to deliver healthcare remotely and virtually. Uh, and I think that's where we're going to see a lot of emphasis by the ministry and by the government in the future.
0: You know, way back before all of this started, uh, the complaints were no one and not enough people have a family doctor. The, the the amount of Canadians without a family doctor is unacceptable. Uh, as you mentioned, a representation in, in rural areas, outside areas that may not have a doctor. How do you think that's going to change that discussion? Well, yeah, that's
1: a really good point to bring up. So one of the biggest worries that we were having with COVID-19 is our people who are in rural communities, people who are in ho- our homeless population, our seniors, our seniors living in nursing homes. I think we need to find ways to collaborate and effectively work with state-level government officials to really fill in the gaps. And by that I mean is that I don't necessarily think that the government can do everything, but I think what they can do is delegate uh, responsibilities among the different stakeholders. So, for example, we have organizations like Canadian Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, and many grassroots community-level organizations that are very equipped and resources and resource in order to fill those gaps. So in the future, I think we need to look at a model where we can delegate those, those senior pockets, those sorry priority groups to those organizations that can fill in the gaps so the government can take care of population health. In an ideal world, it would be great if the government can take care, take care of everybody, and by that I mean including the high priority areas, But I think it's a better solution when we delegate tasks and we give uh, certain responsibilities to stakeholders that can really address those collectively.
0: We've really seen how technology can help us because, again, whether it's mm. in education, whether it's in health, uh, w- all industries really. When you when you come to, when you when you think about it, um, you know, in, in many situations, whether uh, it was wanting to see a face to face person, uh, whether you know um, more people shouldn't be employed doing this. Now, all of a sudden, we're looking at something uh that we 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 looked at the way it has been done for for decades and 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 maybe even centuries and now it's a completely different paradigm shift mm-hmm. where you know what what was once the devil is now the savior here uh now we're seeing how this can be used what about our attitudes about this sort of thing so that's you know that's one of the biggest things though, that we need to think and think in terms of
1: future is how do we change attitudes towards mobile health and like using technology effectively. Uh, I think that what we're gonna see is that we're gonna be using mobile apps more. There will be an investment in them. We have to remind everybody that creating that technology is not cheap and it takes a lot of effort. Uh, and often the difficulty was getting the buy-in. And by the buy-in, I mean, A, by the patient. So we noticed that for our, our more uh, elderly population, we're very resistant to the idea of uh, connecting with our healthcare provider remotely or virtually. I think that's changed. I think COVID nineteen has pushed. I I speak from personal experience. My mother, who is a sixty year old, is an avid fan now of technology. She's continuously remarking how amazing her doctor is that she calls in and she can have a fifteen minute consultation over the phone in the comfort of her own house. That wasn't my mom's opinion uh, three months ago when I used to have to beg her to go and speak to the family physician over the phone. That so I do see the attitudes are changing over time for sure.
0: So here we are entering week number 5 or into week number 5 of all of this. How does our headspace change once we get to this point? At the beginning maybe you know I think many thought, well, let's stock up, hunker down for a couple of weeks. We'll play some board games with the kids. It'll be, you know, it'll be a uh, a deviation away from the stress of day-to-day life. But now here we are. And, you know, this interesting uh, poll from Ledger, and and most Canadians, like 97, 98%, are practicing social distancing. Um, uh, and again, like three quarters of us think that we should keep, you know, stern to these rules until we are out of the woods. So, how has our attitude changed after a month of all of this? I, I mean, I listen, I, I would find it very hard to argue that we're not all tired
1: of this. Uh, I think we need to acknowledge that it's okay to say that this is exhausting mentally on all of us, especially the parents who have children are home, uh, stuck in their homes. So it is, it is very much uh, putting a toll on our mental health. But I think you, what you said was precisely a very wise words about how to look forward, which is that in order to get ahead of this, to really put this behind us, we need to continue following the rules. They're working. We're showing that they're working. Evidence is coming out to tell us that. Physical distancing, working from home, staying home, not leaving your home unless you need to, has an effect. We don't want to become like Italy. We definitely don't want to become like New York. We have examples where when you don't follow the rules, uh, there is a worst-case scenario that might happen. We're not there, luckily. Hopefully, we continue on this trend. We continue to stay ahead of this. This is a message of hope that if we continue following the rules, we will really put this behind us and look back at this time and say, Listen, if you follow the rules, benefits will come out of it. And hopefully we will see this in the next coming months for sure.
0: Considering the models of last week and such, um, uh, do do you think we have missed the worst case scenario? Or, uh, gee, I I don't even know if I want to go there. We just have to be so cautious with all of this. Well, I mean,
1: there are some reports that our hospitals are empty, and and I speak to my physician friends who are currently in the front lines training patients. Uh, Yes, the hospitals are currently not at their, some hospitals are not at their full capacity. But we just need to remind everybody, just because they're low doesn't mean that we're not expecting a surge. The surge can happen any day. And by that, I mean, we can go from having zero patients, which is not the case right now, to having hundreds of them. So, Uh, where that only tells us that the, the warning signs about not overburdening our healthcare system is being delivered, people are listening to them, people are being more conscious of how much they use the services to allow patients who actually need them to get them. We just need to continue on that in expectations of surge. I believe that we haven't gotten the surge yet. I expect it to happen in the next 10 days, in the next week or two. Uh, But like we said before on your show, modeling and data are only a prediction. They're a simulation, they're not guaranteed. Uh, The more we practice physical distancing, the better the outcomes will come. So we just need to wait and see how well we're doing on that.
0: Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human and social sciences and health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks you, too, Scott. Thank you. As we enter into week five, we remember back at the beginning when all of this started, there were some shortages. There was rumors that the liquor stores were going to close, so people were lined up there. There was rumors that uh, we were going to be short of toilet paper. So for some reason, people were hoarding that and hand sanitizer and even bottled water, Uh, and I remember talking to people within the food industry saying that for the most part, the food chain um, is, in the supply chain is safe. Uh, However, we're now hearing rumblings that there could be a shortage of meat due to this pandemic. Uh, To get to the bottom of it, let's bring in Fawn Jackson, Director of Government and International Affairs, Canadian Cattlemen's Association, and on the line with us now. Fawn, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: Hi, thanks for having me
0: so what is the situation with canada's uh, meat supply as i said you know we've talked before in the past about uh the rest of the food chain seems relatively solid but now we're seeing that uh, some of north America's largest meat producers are being forced to close their plants uh, due to the spread of the coronavirus so what's happening here
2: sure well uh, within canada one of our processing facilities uh, has uh, decided to move to a lower capacity uh, processing uh, to deal with COVID-19 uh, uh, in their plant. And so, you know, of course, when COVID-19 started, they put protocols into place and they have protocols if they have positive cases and they've, they've enacted those protocols. And so, um, you know, I, I think that uh, what bring responsible action and uh, hopefully it'll be a short Interruption, and we'll we'll get back to um, to full supply, or you know, to uh, supply chain uh, systems that are adapting to COVID, but are able to um, supply all the way through to to the consumer.
0: So explain about Canada's uh, meat processing, I guess there's a few key plants here and, and the situation is obviously in concern for the workers there, keeping everybody socially distanced and safe distance and, and, and such, um, but there has been some issues of, of, of outbreak, so what does that mean for closures and how is that going to affect what we see on shelves?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard to uh, tell at this time. And, you know, certainly the, the folks who are either working at grocery stores or whether they're working within the food processing industry, I like to you know call them our frontline food heroes because they have such uh, important jobs and, uh, you know, essential to the well-being of, of Canadians and essential to the well-being of the global community, too, because, of course, Canada exports much much of our uh, agriculture uh, products, So I think that the impact will really depend on how quickly we're able to um, um, adapt and, and get back in and running. But I, I would say that, um, you know, if, if anybody can tackle this, I'm, I'm sure it's Canada, and it's going to take some collaboration and it's going to take some uh, hard work, but uh, I, I'm sure that we're, uh, we're up to the, to the challenge.
0: What are your concerns moving forward? I mean, will Canadians see uh, lighter shelves as a result of this?
2: Well, certainly, we would encourage you know Canadians to only buy what they need and um, and and you know not move into a, a hoarding uh, mindset. And so, um, I, I think that it again it goes back to the timeline in in which this is impacting processing, and that's why we're taking it so seriously. Is because um, you know we we know that we need to keep supply chains moving, and that's why um, these practices are, are being implemented so that we can get back to business as as soon as possible. Of course, we represent the farmers and ranchers uh, here in Canada who exist province to province, and so you know our concerns are about making sure that they're getting fair prices, um, that they are uh, able to to uh, move cattle through through the supply chain, and. You know, the well-being of, of their families as well. So we have a number of recommendations uh, into the federal government um, that we think would assist in, in these challenging times.
0: Will consumer see prices go up as a result of this on meat? You no,
2: know, again, I think that those are um, decisions that are, are, are going to be, you know, of the business community. But um, what I'm hoping is that these are short-term uh, disruptions. Um, but I, I do think that these are also serious disruptions and that's why I think you're seeing serious reactions um, you know both by, um, by industry and, and government in and developing protocols and as we learn more about the virus, but getting them in place about um, um, and, and enacting them. So uh, you know, I think that again, it, it goes back to the time frame, but I, I, I would say to Canadians that we're all working really hard to uh, make sure that, uh, you can continue to have Canadian beef on your plates and Canadian agriculture products on your plate, and it's a job that we take very seriously. and And we know that we're an essential service, and so uh, we'll be adapting and implementing uh, best practices uh, so that we can so that we can all. Uh, if there are Canadian in Canadian food,
0: if there are in fact shortages in the Canadian uh, food chain, will there be less exported to other countries?
2: Yeah, I know. I probably sound a little bit like a, bro- a broken record. Um, but, you know, I, again, I think it comes back to uh, the time frame in, in which this, um, this goes on. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, quick reaction is, is what we needed to make the, this uh, as short as possible. And so, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that there aren't going to be uh, large scale interruptions.
0: What is the greatest concern for farmers and people at that end of the of the food chain at this point? What what is the greatest concern for your association moving forward?
2: Yeah, certainly market volatility is something that we've already seen because of uh, COVID nineteen and and you know temporary plant, plant closures are are also a challenge. Um, so you know those are the challenges that we're adapting to and and why we have recommendations into <clears throat> the federal government because. Today, more than ever, Canadian farmers and ranchers and and consumers, uh, you know, here in Canada and around the globe, need stability within the agri-food system. So we need to be putting in place thoughtful uh, policy and and uh, so that we that we are able to maintain that uh, stability and also that we're able to grow in the future. You know, I think one of the interesting things about COVID-19 is it's really proven um, just. Uh, what uh, economic engine uh, agriculture is in Canada. You know, agriculture still has jobs, uh, you know, that are open and really important jobs that are open uh, right now. And so, uh, and we know that, you know, even through COVID-19 people need to eat. And so, uh, uh, you know, we're expecting that there's there's going to be continued uh, demand growth, in Canadian products. And, and so we'll think that we know that we're going to be one of the uh, industries that's going to, able to pull uh, Canada out of the economic hardships that we're facing today.
0: What are a couple of your main recommendations to government on this?
2: Sure. So uh, one of them is um, we call it a set-aside program, and essentially it's sort of slowing down uh, the, the supply chain, so it's putting um, cattle on a, on a lower rash, energy ration diet, and uh, to help manage the number of cattle that, that go to the market uh, given that there's going to be a bit of time here where there's not as much processing capacity so that's that's one of our recommendations but we also have um, some recommendations on how to manage uh, price risk for example so our premiums on the price management program that we utilize in the beef industry have have really skyrocketed because of uh, volatility in the futures markets and so um, but we, we need this program, especially at, at hard times like these. So can we um, somehow you know, manage those, um, those, those, the price of those premiums um, so that the program is, is still um, viable for us to utilize? So those are a few of the recommendations uh, that we have.
0: Fawn Jackson has been with us, Director of Government and International Affairs, Canadian Cattlemen's Association, in regard to keeping the supply chain, the meat uh, supply chain specifically, uh, moving in Canada. Fawn, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and good luck. Be well.
2: Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier today at about 11 a.m., 11.15, the prime minister gave his daily uh, press conference and updated us on what is happening. Here is what uh, he had to say in regard to uh, supplies which and test kits and, and such, which has obviously been of great concern as uh, we have been short on supplies. Here's what the prime minister had to say on this this morning.
3: These new N95 masks are in addition to the more than 820,000 that went to provinces last week. All told, this means that we have 1.1 million N95s ready to be shipped to the provinces and territories, with more to come. In the last few days, we've also made progress on testing. Right now, we're moving forward on a range of rapid testing kits, both from here in Canada and internationally. This includes Ottawa-based Spartan Bioscience, who will soon be supplying tens of thousands of kits per month and potentially more as production increases. We are investing almost $130 million to support northern communities in dealing with COVID-19. If you live in the north, chances are you're worried about whether your local health centre has the resources to fight COVID-19 and to cope with cases that might come up. So we're providing $72.6 million to the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut, specifically for health care and community preparedness.
0: Uh, That is the Prime Minister speaking at his press conference earlier this morning. uh, Also made some revisions to the Quarantine Act. Uh, Now if you are arriving from abroad and you can't uh, provide suitable uh, quarantine um, options I guess for yourself, you will be ordered to stay in a hotel uh, at your expense. Uh, Here's what the Prime Minister had to say.
3: If you've come back to Canada from abroad as of today, we are strengthening measures now if asymptomatic travelers cannot explain a credible quarantine plan they will be required to quarantine in a hotel this will come into effect at midnight tonight
0: all right Uh, so uh, again very slowly uh, an update on on restrictions and uh, involving quarantine and such and uh, more supplies on the way as uh, the uh, the numbers in Ontario. Eight sorry, 483 new cases uh, in Ontario overnight. Uh, 7953 is the total. Uh, 43 new deaths, which uh, is uh, bringing the Ontario total up to 334. So some sobering uh, statistics. That being said, uh, remember back when the projections were given, uh, I guess just over a week ago now, uh, they were saying that at this point we would start to see a massive surge. It looks like that has been contained due to the fact that everybody is doing such a great job in self-isolation. Now, that being said, uh, what does self-isolation mean? Well, a new poll says that Canadians want to see significant progress against COVID-19 before or we get back to normal. Lots of chatter in regard to as we approach the peak, as we get over the top of the hump, and we're on the way down that curve, uh, there are still a significant amount of people that are infected. So it's not like we can just swing open the door and let everybody run free. Uh, these, the, these restrictions will be lifted Uh, just as slowly as they are being put in place. Let's bring in Christian Bork, Executive Vice President and Partner at Ledger, and is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. So uh, your thoughts from, uh, uh, on these polls, on the result of this poll, in the sense that you know, we, we see ourselves getting ready to go down the backside of this curve. We're not there yet. We haven't hit the hump yet. Don't want to give any sort of false sense of security there. Um, but, but even it, it seems that even Canadians realize this can't be an immediate flip of the switch.
4: No, I, we actually asked the question for the first time. We've been tracking uh, public opinion for the past five weeks. Uh, on this issue, but for the first time, because we're heading into that sort of top of the curve, we wanted to know at what point would you feel comfortable that government would be lifting some restrictions on workplace activities um, so that we can go back to, I guess, a new normal. Um, And it's fascinating to see that a majority of Canadians are are, are, are saying this will take a while. There's only 6% of Canadians who say we should lift some restrictions now, protect the elderly, the and the vulnerable, but let's get back to work. There's only 6% of Canadians saying that. About 20%, 19 say that as soon as the pressure is off on the healthcare system, it's time to go back to work. Uh, but that leaves us with six uh, and even closer to seven out of 10 Canadians who say not until there's a vaccine, not until there's been only a few cases, new cases, over the span of a week or two, or when we only see a sporadic case here and there being discovered Uh, around the country. So seven out of 10 are saying not now and not for the uh, foreseeable or or near future.
0: Uh, Do you think that, Christian, has a lot to do with the fact that there just seems to still be a shortage of supplies and a shortage of testing? So there's that great unknown as to where we are. Thus, we're erring on the side of caution.
4: You know, that's certainly part of it. You're right. And uh, the news uh, given by the prime minister today will probably help uh, in that regard. But it's also due to the fact that Canadians, I think, have discovered a new side of themselves and and that collectively uh, we've been able to do something that for for our lifetime has never been seen before. Uh, Ninety-eight percent say they practice social distancing. Ninety-seven say they keep a safe distance from others when they're outside. 95 say they stopped uh, going out except for necessities. So we are following the rules and guidelines uh, that have been put in place, and we're almost sort of religious in, in doing that in Canada. So I think the fact that we comfort ourselves in, in the fact that we are doing the right thing, uh, I think Canadians don't necessarily see the reason why they would stop now if it's actually having that much of an impact uh, on, on on the curve that we're seeing now and that we're slowly sort of gaining on this thing uh, and doing much better than other countries and certainly much better than our uh, southern neighbor uh, in that regard. Uh,
0: Surprised we are doing so well at this. Uh, Is there a common denominator between countries that are doing it well or are at least in agreement with their institutions?
4: Yeah, I believe that a large part of it is tied to... uh, Uh, the amount of trust and respect we have for our institutions. Uh, We know in some countries, in the United States, for example, uh, trust in institutions is traditionally very low compared to to Canada or Great Britain or Germany, uh, which is one of the cases where where things are going fairly well. In this particular case, 76% of Canadians say they are satisfied with the, the work that's being done by the federal government. On average, 84% of Canadians are satisfied with what their provincial government is doing. And on average, 71% think that their municipality is doing the right thing. So this high level of trust in our institutions partly explains why we're being so disciplined at this. Uh, And the fact that we're so disciplined at it, it's almost like we're finding some level of comfort in in saying, as long as I do it, my neighbour does it, uh, why change anything?
0: Uh, how does this differ from the United States? And 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 obviously, as we've anybody that's followed Donald Trump, he he governs very divisively and has and has raised questions about their own institutions down there. Is that why perhaps they're feeling uh, less secure about their institutions? But then, if I'm if I'm correct here, Christian, you just said that traditionally they don't feel that strong about their institutions. Is that accurate?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, one thing that I find very interesting is, is how or, or to what extent um, we basically look at how the media is reporting on this, both what our governments are doing and, and about, uh, about the disease itself. Uh, we ask the question, do you think that this whole thing is being blown out of proportion by our media or do you believe that what we're doing now is the right thing and, and that the media is doing a great job uh, in keeping us informed? there's only 14% of Canadians who say this is being blown out of proportion. It's not, it's not as serious as we hear it is. Hmm. In the States, that's almost double at 26. And, and that sort of gap over time uh, also explains why there's also a gap in, in sort of being disciplined about uh, self-isolation. Uh, we were mentioning this sort of all the results for Canada being in the mid to high 90s in terms of, of, uh, of doing what governments are asking us. But if you look at the gap with the United States, it's between five uh, and even uh, up to 10 points on all of these. So they isolate less. They are less likely to keep a safe distance. They're less likely to do what they've been told by public authorities. And uh, this probably explains why they're having a harder time keeping that curve down compared to Canada
0: uh what about those that do not obey by the laws how does how do canadians feel about those that aren't participating are that aren't doing their service
4: well we we wanted to add a new question because it's come up in the news quite a bit um and we basically the question is would you be a snitch um would you actually call the authorities if, if you saw somebody who was not actually playing by the rules uh, what's fascinating is that 40% of Canadians say that, yes, they would actually call the authorities uh, to denounce behavior that is not in line with, uh, with government measures. In the States, that's 27%. So, uh, again, a huge gap of 13 points where Americans are basically saying, you know, whatever floats your boat, uh, if you do your thing, I do mine. Whereas in Canada, there's a higher likelihood to say, you're doing this wrong, uh, you should be punished or penalized for it. And actually, in the survey we conducted last week, over 80% of, of Canadians um, were okay uh, that the police would issue fines if you are not basically uh, following government measures. And the same percentage, about 80%, said that the, the police should be able to arrest citizens who are not, uh, are not uh, you know, displaying the right behavior uh, in this particular crisis, and these results were also much higher than what we saw in the U.S.,
0: Obviously, Christian, this is a situation which we have not been through before, but over the years, uh, your firm, Ledger, has done lots of polling uh, and measured the, um, the attitude of Canadians. Is there anything that surprises you here or anything that's changing that you can see when, it, when polling Canadians? Are, 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 are you seeing any trends here that, that are changing?
4: Well, I, I see one thing that I was that probably we were not expecting to see at this level. I mean, for the past 25 years, since I've been in this business, all that we've talked about when looking at elections and looking at how people uh, um, look at their government, we've been talking about this growing sense of cynicism, uh, of you know, lack of political participation, mm-hmm. voter turnout is going down, as if people that kind of lost faith. Um, in our government institutions. and When I look at, the, I look at this crisis now and, and to the extent to which Canadians are following the rules, uh, and there's no difference from coast to coast, we're, we're all being sort of fabulous at this. Um, I'm sort of thinking, was this cynicism or is that thing permanent? Uh, and right now what I'm seeing here is that, no, there's probably hope that somewhere in the future uh, we may become or be again the, uh, you know, the 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 responsible citizens that we thought we'd lost over time uh, because we're not seeing this level of cynicism uh, during this crisis at all
0: um before COVID 19 we chatted lots uh on this show and with various experts about the divisiveness the world now finds itself in specifically with the united states and and such do you think this is uniting us do you think we'll come out of this the other you know a, a different world or once things get back to normal we'll forget about all this
4: Oh, well, it all depends. There are so many forces at play here that, that uh, may not be as sensitive as we are, as, as normal folk uh, about all of these things. But certainly you would think that um, early in the crisis, some people said, is this the end of the Euro- European Union because of tensions uh, when, the, when the curve was rising in all the uh, European countries? Now, as we are sort of moving to, uh, to the other side of this crisis, Uh, Maybe the opposite phenomenon um, will indeed happen. Uh, For a while there, there was growing tensions between the States and China over this, but we haven't seen the likes of of that over the past couple of weeks. And the same between tensions between Canada and the U.S., because at one point uh, it was rumored that American troops would be uh, actually protecting the U.S. border uh, with Canada. Um, But we haven't heard about these tensions over the past couple of weeks. I believe we'll grow out of this a better world Um, but again i may just be a dreamer
0: (laughs) christian bork has been with his executive vice president and partner at ledger polling a new poll says that canadians want to see significant progress against covid19 before things get back to normal christian as always thank you so much for your time and insight much appreciated and be well all right thank you stay safe you too You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As uh, this whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic started, the concern, uh, the large concern was about supplies and, and having enough supplies for everybody, having enough testing kits for everybody and uh, slowly those problems are being solved but what has really uh, presented itself in the last few weeks of this uh, last couple of weeks specifically of of this pandemic is how it has ravaged seniors homes and uh, facilities designed to care for uh, those that are vulnerable. To talk more about all of this, uh, let's bring in Jane a uh, bar- uh, bar- uh, barrister and solicitor, institutional advocate, advocacy center for the elderly. And with us now, Jane. Thanks for the time, much appreciated. Hello. Uh Obviously, we've seen the concerns and uh, in, in the horrific stories that are coming out of. Uh, our nursing homes and such uh, right the way uh, across the country what is it that can be done right now by government to help this scenario immediately is there anything
5: well there's a couple of things i think they need uh you know way more staff in those homes they're already having problems staffing but uh, they need to get more personal support workers and more registered staff in those homes to provide appropriate care I think there also has to be consideration as whether or not we should be keeping people who are testing positive within those homes. Um, Long-term care homes are not meant for isolation. And uh, as we've seen, you know, once the uh, uh, COVID gets into the home, it seems to spread. I think there really has to be uh, some really deep thought about Should we be leaving people? I know people want to stay in the homes where they've been living, but at the risk of the other people, I think that we really should be looking at, you know, should we be taking people out of those homes?
0: Uh, you said initially staff, how can we solve that on a short term issue? Obviously, uh, when this is all over, uh, I'm sure many governments and many citizens are going to be analyzing uh, our priorities around the healthcare care system, around making sure this doesn't happen again, especially to 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 seniors. Is it possible to ramp up staff in, a, in an expedited manner during a crisis like this?
5: Well, I, I think that is a real challenge. Um, you know, they are trying to get people who are retired or nursing students who could act as PSWs, um, uh, you know, perhaps uh, some foreign workers who were not, uh, you know, who are uh, licensed in other countries, can't license here, perhaps they can, you know, uh, come into work if they're not working. Uh, it, but it is a huge challenge because we were already facing a... Um, problem getting staffing in long-term care that has been historically been a problem and last fall it was really coming to a head they just did not have enough psws or rns who were willing to work there so it is a huge problem
0: and you know these are problems that have been going on for a while as you alluded to i mean this really does just amplify uh, a greater issue that's been going on in facilities like this for an, for an awful long time will this change our point of view after this is all over
5: uh, one hopes so. Um, unfortunately, I've seen in the past where we've had these sort of, you know, things happen. And everyone gets, you know, on their soapbox and says, we've got to change things, we've got to change things. And then once it dies down, we don't see necessarily the changes that we need. So I think people really need to be going to their MPPs, talking to them, saying, you know, this cannot happen again. Uh, Once this is over, you have to put more money into this. This is not something you can just set aside once again, because that seems to be what happens
0: and you know as we've heard from some of the horror stories coming out of these homes these aren't homes uh, some of these homes are are uh, the the clients pay their families pay a great deal of money to be in these homes and and are totally flabbergasted that that this sort of thing uh, can happen just, just again, as the system collapses. Uh, well, how will, and you, sorry, go ahead. You wanna comment, go ahead.
5: Well, I was just gonna say, there's two kinds of homes. So that, you know, we have long-term care homes, and those are government funded, uh, where people pay uh, a per diem, but it's it's the, the rate is set by the government. Um, the other homes, which are the more expensive ones, would be retirement homes. And those are, you know, tenancies where you purchase your care. And they can be very expensive because there is no government funding for that. Um, and the problem is, is that you know, a lot of people who should be in long-term care were not able to get into long-term care because we don't have enough beds, um, you know, the system's not properly funded. And so they were having to go to retirement homes, which really couldn't provide that high level of care that they really needed, except at a very high cost. So we're really also downloading a lot of the cost of health care onto seniors.
0: And you know, you talked about uh, the homes and the community spirit there. And, and you know, when when they're selling these homes, this this is a great selling feature is the fact that there's so many activities and it's such a community environment uh, for people to grow old in. However, it doesn't appear that in any way these facilities are set up for something like a pandemic, although, wouldn't we see something like this in every season for the flu? I mean, so is there something better we can do within the homes themselves to protect the residents once this sort of thing starts to happen?
5: Absolutely, and I think you hit the nail on the head right there is that In fact, we do see these kinds of things happening with the flu every year. It's just not necessarily brought to the attention of the public. And it's sort of seen as, well, this is just what happens in long-term care. The flu gets in and, you know, we're going to lose a few people, but that's just the way it is. Um, Some of the problem has to do with staffing, um, you know, lack of uh, proper training around um, isolation and those kinds of techniques that we need in order to keep everyone safe. Um, We also have, in in long-term care, we have a lot of homes that are still um, under the sort of the 1972 standards of the design standards. So this is the four bedrooms that are very cramped with the large dining rooms. And they are, um, you know, they're not good for isolation. Um, People are having to go up and down elevators uh, to get to, you know, big congregate dining halls and stuff those homes uh, have even more problems in trying to isolate people uh, when these kind of flu outbreaks happen.
0: How will this, and you would assume, as we mentioned earlier, that since, you know, uh, flu and influenza is common every year, I guess not common, but certainly a threat every year uh, to these facilities, is there or should there be a provincial or federal plan in place that once, A facility gets hit with something like this. There's certain things that have to kick in. There's certain things that have to happen. It just it doesn't seem like obviously these these places aren't designed for this sort of thing, as you've mentioned. But it also doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be any plan if there is a massive breakout of any sort.
5: Yeah, I mean there's you know, I mean there are, you know, homes do have to have um policies around this, but I don't think it's sufficient. I think we have a lot have to have a lot more input from the professionals from public health to say how do we protect um seniors and and other dis- disabled people who live in these homes? Uh how do we protect them uh when there is a contagious illness going around a home? Um You know, one of the things that happens is that people aren't allowed to be admitted, um, but it very often doesn't really help protect the people in the homes. Um, But the only thing they, you know, generally do is sort of, if there's a a flu on a unit, you just keep everybody on the unit, but that doesn't protect the people who have to stay on that unit. So I think we really have a lot of work to do to figure out how to protect people living in long-term care when there's an outbreak, because what we're doing now is not sufficient.
0: And when this all started, there were some that were suggesting that they take their uh, family members out of such homes. But they were, uh, uh, I guess, um, not told not to, but certainly uh, uh, given evidence that perhaps they shouldn't because the level of care needed. Perhaps they couldn't do that at home. And the other situation was once they get out, they can't get back in until all of this is is over so it, it seems as if at the beginning of this uh pandemic we said one thing and now we're saying well if you can get them out get them out
5: yeah i mean i think you know uh from the beginning I uh, you know i was certainly telling people that if they had the ability to take someone home that that may be something that they want to do but that certainly is not something that many people can do um you have to have the right kind of home structure You know if you're a senior yourself and the person that you're having to take care of requires lifting and transferring you probably can't do that on your own and there is not going to be a lot of home care available if any because it's already being used um so there's a lot of factors that you have to look at before you take someone home um i think that you know the government did change the rules around readmission so you know people who were pulled out or or who are pulled out now Um, When the pandemic is over, they can be readmitted um, quite quickly. They go to the very, very top of the list. That's a change in legislation. So that certainly is something that will be helpful. Um, But it's a very difficult decision to make and certainly not one that everyone is able
1: to do.
0: And another thing here in all of this equation, Jane, is that where we are in the demographic of this country, I mean, the baby boomer population is moving through. So we're still going to have 25, 30 years of a very, very strong uh, senior demographic. So this problem is not going away.
5: The problem is not going away. And I think it's absolutely we need to know. Um, what we need to care for these people. I mean, most seniors, you know, don't end up in long-term care, actually. Uh, but for the, those that do, um, we have to figure out how to provide better care there. I think we also have to figure out how to provide better care to uh, people who are younger with disabilities. Uh, many of those people do end up in long-term care. Um, I have clients who are in their 20s who live in long-term care homes, and that is not where they should be either.
0: Has the value of the personal care worker just gone up?
5: I hope so, because I think that they are the, you know, they're the backbone of long-term care homes. They do the bulk of the work. Uh, They are such an essential part of long-term care, and they have not um, gotten the recognition uh, that they need. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we'll get better funding for them, um, that there will be some change in rules around, you know, all of this part-time work, which uh, shouldn't happen. Uh, and hopefully we'll make a better system.
0: And obviously a very growing industry because if we mentioned earlier, I mean as the demographic moves through, there's only going to be more and more uh seniors in the system. So what would it be like if all of a sudden this happened 20 years from yeah. now when there's more I mean, seniors in that system?
5: Yeah, I mean again, it you know it could be, you know, you, you know if we don't if we don't create the right kind of spaces and have the right kind of um planning it's a problem um you know but part of the problem is that many of these places the places that are expanding are the retirement home sector which is um private pay uh taking the money you know and, and paying private companies it's not um publicly funded health care and and that's a problem too because people have paid into the system and they should be entitled to to get what they pay for and and they're not um so i think that that's something that the government really has to look at as well
0: Uh, Many have talked about the cost uh, uh, economically of bailing us all out of this. But this in itself, just this sector in itself, it's going to be a massive cost in the next 10 to 20 years, isn't it?
5: Yeah, absolutely it is. And, uh, you know, that is why we don't get the changes because they say, well, it's going to cost too much. Uh, We don't have the money for that. Um you know, unfortunately, it's always putting the money in at the wrong time. So they're putting it in now instead of at the preventive time. So what we really need to do is to put it in, in the prevention, preventing people from going to long-term care or needing long-term care, um, and then providing the right kind of care and proper care in the home so that we don't have these kind of massive outbreaks that we're seeing now.
0: Uh, do we need some sort of more consistent plan with this? You talked about the the, the private setups, and again, a lot of them are very expensive. Uh, and then there's a limited amount of of publicly funded uh, situations. Does this do we need to come up with a more comprehensive plan of how we're going to do this in the next 25 years?
5: Absolutely, I think that we don't have a plan either on the provincial or the national level, and that's something that um, coming out of this, I'm really hoping that the governments will wake up and say, you know, we really need to do proper planning. And, um, you know, this is where the bulk of health care is, you know, with seniors and, you know, people who have high care needs. Um, And yet, you know, we're putting the money in, we put our money into other areas of health care.
3: Any
0: advice for those families who are experiencing this right now that have someone in a facility and, and are living this?
5: Well, I really think that people should be trying to get information from the homes. I know this is is turning out to be a real challenge from homes who are, uh, you know, not necessarily providing a lot of information. Um, Hopefully the homes are um, providing uh, some ability to see their family members through Skype or Zoom or whatever kind of social media they're using um, because really to to put your eyes on the person to see that they're, you know, taken care of and that they're well um, I think is a very important thing.
0: What do you see the biggest challenge as we move out of this COVID-19 situation? We're still not quite uh, at the peak yet, but people are talking about uh, coming down the other side. What does that mean for these homes? How long before uh, they open uh, back up again? I mean, I'm sure they're under the same guidelines as everybody else. Until we really see some massive improvement, this isn't going to change. But how long do you, do you figure these, these facilities will be under this kind of lockdown?
5: Well, I mean, I think that they're going to be under lockdown longer than the rest of us, um, just for safety reasons. You know, they're, they're the ones that uh, are a bit of the canary in the coal mine, that if it comes back, I think those that's where we're going to see them. Um, you know, I'm hoping that the government will put together teams that will really be able to do some sort of deep cleaning in some of these homes to ensure that, you know, where we're hearing about, you know, things being able to live on services. So... You know, we really need to ensure that, you know, everything is cleaned out, everyone is safe, you know, testing um, before we open these places back up.
0: All right, Jane Medes has been with us, barrister and solicitor, institutional advocate, advocacy center for the elderly. Jane, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.